0: We have two scripture readings this morning. If you would open up your Bibles first to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 32, or really is, (laughs) one of my Hebrew professors used to say it was his pet peeve whenever someone would say chapter 32, because really it's just an individual psalm. So it's Psalm 32. Psalm 32 verses 1 through 5. Uh, This is a great text that uh, really uh, correlates to the text that we will be preaching this morning. Psalm 32 verses 1 through 5, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Turn now to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, which is our sermon text for this morning. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that in your divine mercy that you, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would bless the hearing of your word. Father, we are asking that you would help us to see how gracious your grace really is. That is often very intimidating, offensive, scandalous, or all the above. But we trust that it's exactly what we need. So be with us this morning and transform us. Because only you can do it. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. One of the things that I have often struggled with and I've often counseled people who have struggled with is it is easier for people to believe that sins can be forgiven, but really the question is this, can my sins be forgiven? I understand Jesus forgives sins, he's a savior of sinners, but what I really want to know is can he forgive my sins? I remember when I was a freshman in college, and even though I had grown up in the PCA church in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, everything appeared as if I was not a believer, and probably most likely was not. And when I went to New Orleans for college uh, after leaving Montgomery, I went into a very wild living style, and you can imagine, uh, just fill in the blanks. And I remember finally, one summer after, or the summer after freshman year, i had finally mustered up the courage to try to reach out to a local youth pastor to try to tell him a lot of the shame I was experiencing because I knew I needed to talk with someone. I think the bad decision of this was that for whatever reason, I didn't go to my own youth pastor who would have been great. Uh, But because of caring more about my reputation rather than integrity. I went to another person who seemed like a safer option. So finally, as I'm meeting with this person, you kind of do that thing where you're meeting with them for maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, you know you need to leave soon, but you really haven't talked about the thing that you really wanted to meet with them about. So finally, I mustered up the courage and I spilled the beans about things I had been doing and college with girls and with drugs and with alcohol and all these different things and I'll never forget how he responded he responded by turning to me saying you did what and then proceeded to walk off and get into his car and drive off I was a pastor Have you been there before? Maybe you have. Maybe you are in that place. And you know what? Sometimes even PCA pastors, Reformed pastors who believe in God's grace, we can still sin that way and we can do that. That's a painful moment. And it makes that lingering question of can my sins be forgiven, it makes that question get even larger. And more weighty. Is is Martin Luther exaggerating when he says that the gospel is for real sinners with real sin? I mean, here's, here's the honest question. Do we really believe that there is actual free, full forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ? Do we really believe that today? Because we really believe in an... Or we really live in an era where everything is about justice. Everything is about exacting. Do we really believe in God's grace? I remember having another moment in my life where I was really struggling with the reminders of things that I had done in the past. And this is actually after I would become a believer. And I was really struggling and I really was desperate for some assurance. And I came across a song, the song we're actually going to sing after this sermon, a song by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa called His Mercy Is More. And what's repeated over and over in this song is this, our sins, not their sins, our sins, the people singing the song, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more our sins they are many but his mercy his mercy is far more this is what that text is talking about this right here is the heart of the gospel what are the sins that you bring in here this morning i'm not talking about the sins you like to admit or the how Jerry Bridges once said, the respectable sins, you know, the sins that you're actually comfortable, you know, talking about with a group of people, but you don't really talk about the actual sins that you're struggling with. I'm talking about literally the, the, the real sins of our life. What is it that you are really bringing in here? Maybe the ones you've tried your whole life to forget, or the ones that you feel like since you finally moved away from home that you've escaped that. Or maybe the ones that you've done privately that you hope others don't know about. Or maybe it's the ones that sent you to jail or that ended up in a divorce or ended up in you being sued or having an affair or loss of friendships or loss of children. I am asking you this, what are your real sins? And I'm not saying you have to have these heinous sins to have real sins. I'm talking about the real sinful heart, not the one we try to dress it up to be. Because that is who Jesus is speaking to. I think it is very important, before we dive into the text, I think it's very important to remember this. If the gospel of grace cannot work in the worst prison in the world, it does not work, period. If there is not free and full forgiveness in Jesus Christ for the worst of the worst, then it's for nobody. So it better work. Here's what you're going to see in this text. Let me set the scene for you in these first couple of verses. Go back to verse 36. One of the Pharisees had asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house. I love that, because you'll never see Jesus uh, say no to an invitation. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It is actually helpful to understand who are the Pharisees. Because one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to say, oh, Pharisees, really bad guys. Actually, were Pharisees to be in our society today, we would look at them and say, good guys. Elect them, hold them up as your leaders, make them your pastors. Let me give you a little background, actually, to who the Pharisees were, because I actually think this will really help make sense. So bear with me here. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great and his army swept through the land and conquered the area where Israel was. The result of that was what was called the Hellenization of Israel. Now, during that time of Hellenizing, as it were, not about hell, but was a different culture. The Hellenization of Israel, not every Jewish person liked that. This brought the rise, I mean, you've probably heard of this family before. This brought the rise of the Maccabee family in the second century. This period of time with the Maccabees leading the cause it was a period of Jewish rebellion in order to gain back religious and political power from their oppressors. Finally, in 63 B.C., so you can kind of hear some of the timeline here. In 63 B.C., Pompey arose and he defeated the Maccabean Revolt. Now listen to this. Not long after that, there was a man who was granted power by the Roman government to exercise authority over the people in Judea. His name was Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great was a distant relative from the Maccabees. So people of Jewish line thought, there's hope. But Herod the Great was basically a puppet for the Roman Empire. He wanted just to stay in power, and so his rule was mainly a charade. Herod was a stereotypical corrupt politician. He just wanted to keep his popularity. Eventually, power and popularity, they always collide. And so Herod, when it came to the point where it was colliding... He put a Roman eagle on the entrance of the temple in Jerusalem. Big no-no for the Jewish people. Now, what happened was, when that happened, a revolt and a rebellion happened. As the revolt happened, that was the type of, uh, it, it was, it was squashed, but that was the type of culture, the type of environment and hostility that Jesus was born into. When Jesus was a child, Herod's successor, who was Herod's son named Archelaus, he was called. He called in the Roman army to crucify two thousand Jews. So you can see how these tensions are not going so well. Now this this all this tension. Here's what's building up to. This brought rise to three different people groups within uh, the Jewish people, and you'll recognize these names one group was called the zealots one group was called the sadducees and the other group was called the pharisees the pharisees were the party of the populace as one person says they didn't like to enjoy the material benefits that the roman empire had brought in it was too it was too hellenized they the pharisees they were driven to strictly obey the law And in so doing, as you might be aware of, they added 600 something more laws to make sure everyone was good. One historian says this, the Pharisees' emphasis on the law sought to make the faith of Israel relevant to everyday situations and to new circumstances under Roman rule and the Hellenizing threats. Here's what I'm trying to say. What's happening here in this scene with Jesus, what happened in literal history 2,000 years ago, is you have Pharisees who were looking at the Jewish people saying, we better be good and you better not be worldly. Because if we're going to bring back the days of David, then we can't be living in sin. By the way, we're going to give you 600 more laws that you better make sure you obey. That's what was the context here. So here's what I'm trying to say. This woman literally is the figure for them who says, you're the problem. You are the problem. That would be the tension here. During a dinner like this, when someone would come in, we need to remember that they weren't wearing closed-toed shoes. Uh... They, if they even had shoes, they would be open-toed, maybe Birkenstock-like shoes with straps on the top and uh, open toes. In other words, their feet would be nasty. Their feet would be caked with dirt, maybe even manure from a long time walking. So it was very polite and it was a cultural custom that whenever you would have someone come eat with you, you would offer a bowl of water so that they could wash their feet. That didn't happen. Another thing that didn't happen that was also a cultural custom was this. Whenever someone would come in, you would greet them with a kiss. Paul will actually say this in some of his letters, where he will say, greet each other with a holy kiss. That kiss was a sign of welcoming. It was a sign of fellowship. But that didn't happen. What's also helpful to remember is this. When they would be eating... They did not have chairs like these and a table like we normally have where you would sit down, knees and legs underneath the table and your arms on top. What you would do is you would recline. That's why it's using that word. There would be a very low table and you would recline and you would lean on your left elbow and you would uh, grab food with your right hand. I'm going to show you how that's actually very relevant for this. Especially, though, if you knew someone was a prophet of God, you would anoint them. But you don't see that happening here from Simon the Pharisee. Not you, Simon. I love you. But you don't see that happen. Now, who is this woman? Look at verse 37. Remember in Scripture, whenever you see the word behold, it is very important. It means stop everything that you're doing and pay attention because something big is about to happen. So it says that, and behold, amidst all this stuff going on, a woman of the city who was a sinner crashes the party. What does it mean when it says that she is a woman of the city? Does it mean she's just a generally, she's just a worldly person? No, here's what this means. Scholars say that every evidence of this points to the fact that she would be a prostitute. So you see how she would be, to a Pharisee's eyes, she would be one of the things where they would say, you're the problem. She wouldn't just be a sinner, she would be the sinner. Now, what's really interesting here is that if you already know she's a prostitute, why would you have to also say she's a sinner? You see that, right? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. I mean, we, we, we know it's common knowledge that that line of work is sin. Here's what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to show you one for how the Pharisees really view her, but he's trying to make sure you understand that there is nothing small about her sin. That's very important. This is the sinner that they would know. If, you, you know, if you're teaching your kids you know, what is sin, you know, do you know any sinners? They would say, her. That's who they would think of. The point of this is to say this, that no matter what your sins are, You can be in the place of this woman if you come to Jesus Christ. That's the point. The Bible is often arguing from the greater to the lesser so that you might definitively know that no matter what sins that you have, if you just come to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Amen? When it says that she was a sinner... This is actually really interesting. I learned this this week. The tense that this word is in means that she is most likely still in that line of profession. This is most likely a situation where it's not as if for whatever reason that she has stopped doing. Maybe because of a system of oppression. Maybe because of her own willingness. I don't know. But she's still in that. This is not the situation where what we often love to do with testimonies, we often love to say, oh yeah, that's what I, you know, I used to have these sins, and really by implication we're saying, but I definitely don't struggle with anything now. No, th- 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 this is, once again, this is talking about how anyone, no matter what you've brought in to these doors, this is for you. Maybe she was a new believer. Maybe she just had some knowledge about Jesus and wasn't a believer until a couple moments from now. I don't know. But regardless, what we know is this. She came to Jesus. Do you see that? She came to Jesus. And I'm not just talking about physically being in his presence because Simon the Pharisee was. I'm talking about spiritually. That's the key. Who is forgiveness for? Forgiveness is only for those who have come to Jesus. Forgiveness is not just some tangible thing that God kind of like rains down upon us. Forgiveness is in the person of Christ. You've got to get him to get forgiveness. Forgiveness is his posture towards you. Forgiveness is how he treats you, how he legally declares you. So you've got to get him, not just a tangible thing. Forgiveness is not for those who have arrogantly stayed away like this Pharisee. And notice this. You can be in the presence of Jesus himself and still not be saved. You can know a lot of facts about theology and not be saved. You can know a lot of doctrine and not be saved. You can appear to be very spiritual and not be saved. You can be baptized and you can take the Lord's Supper, but yet still not be saved. You could even evangelize and still not be saved. The question is, have you come to Jesus Christ? Forgiveness... And this type of forgiveness, this radical forgiveness, it is only for those who have come to Christ. Notice what I'm also saying. This forgiveness is not given to us because we're sorry enough. (laughs) Let me tell you something. You ain't ever going to be sorry enough. This forgiveness is not for those who say, I promise I will go on a streak of not sinning that sin again, and then I'll receive forgiveness. It's not it. The question is just, have you come to Jesus? That is the only question. Have you come to Jesus like this woman? She brings a alabaster flask of ointment. This would have been very expensive. We don't have any answers, but you do wonder where did she get the money? Was it from her profession? Was it from someone else? I don't know. But what we do know is that this is very expensive and what we know from 2 Kings 9 verse 6 is that uh, uh, this ointment would be used to anoint a king. So maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe it's a very small beginning work, but maybe she already knows more true theology than this Pharisee does who would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. She's weeping. This is not mustering up some tears. Let me just show you, you know, squeeze kind of hard, get a tear or two. I'm really sorry. This word for weeping is the same word used for rain showers that can just spontaneously come upon you. It actually reminds me of uh, the rain showers that would often happen spur the moment in New Orleans. Sometimes it would just randomly start raining. Uh, Jeffrey Wang's in here. You live in Louisiana. You know what I'm talking about. And it would just spontaneously rain and and the one time my car got flooded because it was so hard, so fast. That's the type of picture we're talking about. We're talking about someone who is broken. We're talking about someone who is shattered. This is not faking it. And then something crazy happens. Do you see it? Back in that day, women would have worn their hair up. So, To wipe Jesus' nasty, dirty feet. I I do say that with all reverence, but trying to give the actual picture. She would have had to undo her hair. With her hair, not with the clothes, with her hair, she is wiping Jesus' feet. She is as close to his feet as you could imagine. How humbling. What's interesting, actually, in that day, there was something called the Mishnah, which was the oral law of the Pharisees, and it was from 570 B.C. to 70 A.D., and in that Mishnah law, it says this, a man may divorce his wife and leave her no financial settlement if she goes out into the town with hair unbound and spins in the street or speaks with any man. Why did it have that law? Here's why it had that law. Because the only time you would let your hair down would be in the most intimate of settings with a spouse or in her profession. How different is this moment from what her profession has been? How different is this moment here with Jesus? Can we actually see what she's doing here? And can we actually see where grace actually goes? It doesn't go to the self that we love to put out on Instagram or TikTok or whatever's the cool trendy thing nowadays. I'm already irrelevant and I'm only 32. It's not our curated self. That we love for other people to see us as. The reputation that we want to have. No, he's talking about the real you. That is where God's grace goes. Now, that's the setting. Let's build into what we're getting at. You see how Simon the Pharisee, he's, he's stunned. This is the incredibly awkward moment. He, he can't believe what he's seeing. Verse 39, he's thinking to himself, he says, if this guy were a prophet, he would know who this is because anyone can tell who this type of person is. Let a, surely a prophet would know this. Why is he letting her do this? No doubt he would probably be thinking about the Old Testament law that would be saying how whenever you would come in contact with someone unclean, you would become unclean. But here's what he fails to see. He fails to see that the temple, the holy of holies itself, is incarnated in Christ. And when he comes to you, he casts out unclean. You see, this is what self-righteousness sounds like. Self-righteousness sounds like I'm the one who really knows what I'm talking about. Everyone else needs to get on my page. I'm the one who actually has knowledge. I'm the one who others need to be like. I had two students one time in RUF years ago who had very legalistic tendencies and I remember... Uh, this is exactly what they were doing and saying. They need to be like us. Matter of fact, that's what young Wilson was. Oftentimes as Christians, what you do is when you get really excited about theology, what can happen is is that you forget that there is something way different than just knowing about versus really knowing. And you you can become very proud, very self-righteous, What can happen is, we can often be very self-righteous towards the self-righteous, can't we? This is what Simon and these other people here are doing. They're very self-righteous towards this woman. What Simon in particular is saying is that, Jesus, I clearly know more than you know about this woman. How audacious. You see, self-righteousness is also the posture of hoping that what I'm saying right now, you hope others will hear it. One person has said that prophets can sniff sin's odors from miles away. So surely this is what Simon would be thinking. If Jesus is really a prophet, then how does he not know who this is? I remember one time when I was in the Boston area, and uh, this was during my first year of seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and I was invited to come do a career day panel, And it was hilarious because they put me, they didn't want me to come as a future pastor. (laughs) They didn't want that. Uh, They wanted me to come as a washed up uh, ex-football player. And they placed me on a panel with like a DEA agent, a cop, a firefighter, and another like uh, detective. And I remember thinking, this is just so like, I'm like the weird one. Uh, And of course, when the story started to be told, they didn't care about mine. they lived in Boston. They knew who Tom Brady was. Um, And one guy starts telling a story. He tells a story about, he's a detective, and he gets a phone call, and they say, hey, you need to come to the hospital right now. We have a man who is handcuffed to one of our beds. So he goes to the hospital. He shows up to the hospital, and he gets to the room where he's at, and and uh, they, they debrief him about what's going on. They show him some x-rays. They give him the x-rays. And he walks into this room. And here's this middle-aged man who is uh, chained to a hospital bed, wondering what in the world is going on. So this detective starts asking him some stories. And this guy was a roofer. And he'd been doing construction for a long time. And the guy came into the hospital because he was having a lot of really bad headaches. So the detective is talking to him. And he says, sir, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a fight before? This guy grew up in inner city Boston. He said, yeah, I've been in a couple fights. Okay, sir, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been stabbed before? I'm pretty sure I would remember that. Uh, no. Okay, sir, let me ask you one more question. Have you ever been stabbed in the face with a knife? Now, you would, you would probably remember that. So the guy said, uh, no. I'll just use this as an example. Here's the x-ray. He turns it over. He says, sir, well, then how do you explain this? And on this x-ray, which he showed to us in person, so this is true, uh, the kids went wild. There was a three to four inch knife blade that was stuck in his skull. Upon further questioning, what happened was this. Years and years ago, this guy was so inebriated one night, he had gotten in a bar fight. And somehow, a guy pulled out a knife and he went to stab him with it. And when he stabbed him, it went between his eyeball and the bone right here. And when he stabbed him, somehow the knife blade broke. And because he did not have much money, he decided not to go to the hospital. He thought it was just a really bad boxer's cut, and so he just let it heal on its own. Well, when you're a roofer, and you're having some really bad headaches, it's probably not good to be on the roof. So that's how he ended up in the hospital. It was killing him. My friends, this is the reality for you and me. Do you know what's killing you that you're ignoring? Your sin? Your sin, my sin is killing me when we ignore it. That is the real problem of today. And when we ignore sin, we definitely don't sing much about how his mercy is more. Now Jesus responds to this. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, Say it, teacher. Now, I do think it's really interesting. How did Jesus know what he was thinking? Did he somehow just access his divine mind and read Simon's mind? No. Actually, this is what a prophet would do because the Holy Spirit would make it known to him. So, literally, by him responding to Simon's inner thoughts, he is proving that he is the prophet. And so he tells this parable. He tells a parable about two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. And this would be equivalent to a day's wage versus a year's wage almost. So it's a huge difference. Both of them could not pay, notice that. But both of them would be forgiven. Now here is what Jesus is saying. This is actually summarized very well in our Westminster Larger Catechism, question 150, It says, are all sins of the law of God, are they all equally heinous in themselves in the sight of God? One of the things we love to say is that all sin is equal. Actually, the Bible would say otherwise. Uh, This is the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He is actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, he he is saying, hey, don't just avoid the really heinous acts of murder. You need to see where it started in your heart. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism says all sins of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations of it, they are more heinous in the sight of God than others. I mean, it, it, it is clear living out a sexual desire is more heinous than just the sexual desire in your heart. They're both sinful, both deserve death, both deserve God's wrath, but there is a more heinous expression of it. But here's what's interesting. This does not mean that if you and I have more heinous sin, that you need some Jesus plus something else. Amen? That's very important. There's one Savior, there's one Jesus, there's one sacrifice for all imaginable sins that could be conceived. And actually, what's very fascinating, because here's what's happening. It's actually because the woman, by the Holy Spirit, she actually recognizes how heinous her sin is, and she comes to Jesus with them. But notice, actually, who stays in their sin, the person who thinks it's manageable. That is often how the turntables can turn, as Michael Scott used to say. One of the most dangerous things is actually self-righteousness because self-righteousness can become the more heinous sin because you often think I'm fine or I just need a little bit of Jesus. I don't really need all this grace. Very interestingly, I've noticed through the years that the easiest people to minister to are the people with no matter what sins there are, they bring them in and they call it as it is and they say, I need God's grace We're often too busy trying to just make ourselves feel better by comparing ourselves to others. We love to water down our sin. We love to make it look like it's not that bad. The problem is, whenever you minimize sin, you minimize God's grace. Here is where everything builds up to. Look at verse 44. Or actually, look at verse 43. Jesus asked him a question, which one would love him more if the debts were canceled? Simon answered, the one, I suppose. I kind of want to be like, what do you mean you suppose? It's a very clear answer. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And here's kind of the scary response from Jesus. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. <laughs> you better buckle up. Then turning toward the woman, remember, he's reclining at table. He's been talking with Simon this whole time while this woman is weeping at his feet, washing them with her hair. And now he turns toward the woman by default, turning his back on Simon. Now he's going to still speak to Simon, but he's facing the woman. Turning toward the woman, he says, Do you see this woman? (laughs) I think that's hilarious. There is nothing else happening at this moment besides that. That is the awkward moment. Of all awkward moments, what do you mean, do we see this woman? There's nothing else we see right now, Jesus. But here's the thing. You can look at someone, but you can't, you often can't see them. Oftentimes we just look at sin as just some sort of problem in itself and we forget the heart. And then Jesus starts doing this. He starts saying, look, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Notice how different this is from someone who prided himself in God's law versus the prostitute. he actually shows how, who's the one who actually has real belief right here? You see, this is actually what happens when you proclaim God's grace as it is. And this is also in the case of Simon. This is what happens when you try to depend upon the law. Jesus in verse 47 says this, therefore I tell you. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you you catch that? What's wrong with that statement as it were? Is this guy even a prophet? I don't know. He clearly doesn't see this, this woman for who she really is. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, therefore I tell you, not this, thus says the Lord. Why does he not say thus says the Lord? Because he is the Lord. Therefore, I tell you with all of my heavenly and holy authority, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are manageable, right? That's what it says, right? Look at it. Her sins, which are not, they're not really that bad. She just needs to love herself more. No, no, no. Her her sins, which are many. And by the way, nerd out for a second, that Greek word for many, it means many. Many. He's not watering it down. Your sins, my sins, they are many. But all those sins are forgiven. Amen? Space is really big, isn't it? The answer is yes. Space is very big. I don't know if y'all have noticed this as well, but when you look up into space, you'll see this really bright, blazing ball in the sky. is about 92, 93 million miles away. Have y'all seen that? Okay. It's the sun. Um, It's huge. You can't ignore it. That's your sin. But nevertheless, as though it is so massive and it's so huge, it's measurable. Have we ever been able to measure outer space? My friends, that is God's grace for you. That's God's grace for you. Jesus is politely hounding her of your sins, your sins, your actual sins. They're forgiven. Forgiven means they're gone from her record. Interestingly, this word for forgiveness means that her sins are divorced from her. They're no longer held against her. There's no condemnation. They've been canceled. They've been released. They've been thrown out. And it's when he says that they have been forgiven, it's actually very interesting how he says this in the Greek language. It means this. It's a definitive moment of time that can't be undone. But that moment of time will affect her the rest of her life. It means this, because she's been saved, she cannot possibly sin in such a way in the future that would make her lose her salvation. Amen. She might deal with future shame or haunting memories. Maybe her friends won't let her forget about it, but God has cast it away. But it's also interesting here because it says that Her sins are forgiven. It does not say she forgave herself. That is not what you can do. You and I do not have that authority to forgive ourselves. God does. You and I do not forgive ourselves. We trust that God has. Amen. Then he speaks to her. I don't have time for all this. This is amazing. He speaks to her and he says your sins are forgiven don't you love that because oftentimes we need to hear it personally my friends i'm talking to every single person who is in here at this moment right now i'm not talking to out there people or just talking about theology this is god speaking to you from his word if you've come to jesus christ your sins are forgiven Your sins are forgiven. Amen? And why? Because what would have to happen on the cross is that he would take the curse. He would take the wrath. And he would drain that cup of God's wrath so empty that there would not even be the threat of it ever coming upon you again. Amen? Let me leave you with one story. You can't make this up. I preached this years ago down in Edmond. Preached at another church and was preaching this. Uh, a couple of days earlier I was listening to this audiobook called House to House which is uh, about uh, soldiers in the Iraq war and a, me- a memoir, autobiography by a guy named Sergeant Bellavia. And at one point when Sergeant Bellavia was in Iraq he, he had been on numerous of these missions, and he had seen atrocities. He's done several of these atrocities. Uh, Maybe some of you know that. At one point, a chaplain comes up to him, and he says, Sergeant Bellavia, can I pray for you? And Sergeant Bellavia says, he describes his thought life, and he says, if this guy had any clue what I've seen or what I've done or what I've let other people do, he, he would not ask to pray for me. And so I'm giving this illustration to this, to this church. I, I've never been to this church before. Uh, I, I only knew the pastor, uh, and he didn't tell me anything about his people. I'm giving this illustration because I thought it really fit the point, because it was a great anti-illustration to, to show this. I, I said, look, this text in Luke 7 proves that it does not matter what your sins are, how atrocious they are, God can forgive any sins. And then I said, amen, and we prayed. I get a text a couple hours later, and I can show you the text, I I, I didn't pull up today, but I get a text a couple hours later from the pastor of the church, and he forwarded me a message from another person in their congregation, and he said, tell Pastor Wilson that I too fought in that battle, the battle of Felucia, and I too have been struggling for year after year after year with those same thoughts that there's... God can't forgive me. He said, but that text today was essentially the nail in the coffin to let me know they had been forgiven in Christ. If the gospel does not work for men like that, it doesn't work. And all you have to do today is just believe. Just come to Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, only you can make dead bones come to life. Only you can help us to live. But Jesus, we thank you that that's what you do. It's what you do every Sunday. You're doing it all across the world right now. Would you do so among us? We ask all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song.